our official topic for this slot is uh, reading the Bible for spiritual formation. So you'll see we're kind of following on from the topic of spirituality. Um, and formation is kind of another word in, in the kind of same area uh, that you might use, spiritual formation. And how does the Bible play a role in that? So covering quite a few topics, but we're kind of trying to pull it together by the end into um, thinking about spirituality in the Bible and spiritual formation. So here's how I think about spirituality, and I don't think this is in contradiction or in conflict with what Jim was talking about this morning. Uh, I, I think they're kind of compatible ways of looking at this. I guess I think Jim was really talking about what is true spirituality um, from a, a Christian point of view. Uh, and I want to introduce you to a sort of more general way of thinking about it that can then be applied within Christianity specifically. But I do think it is uh, a, a model that has biblical foundations. So I would say everyone has a spirituality, or perhaps, and again, because the word doesn't translate particularly, a good way to think of that is a way of life, a way of living in the world. One that's generally speaking um, aimed at a kind of virtuous, holistic formation of the person bringing the person together with an integrity of being. And the spirituality is made up of your, your kind of worldview. We talk a lot about worldview on the KL course. I think a kind of spirituality is a slightly larger notion, but it's made up of, yes, your worldview, your worldview assumptions, including beliefs, ideas about reality that you hold at on the basis of and so on but combined with your attitudes, your uh, emotional reactions, your choices, your commitment to things, your uh, being attracted or repelled by things and so on, kind of a matter of your heart, so your, your head assumptions, your heart attitudes, and that combination of head and heart assumptions and attitudes leads you to, to act in the world, uh, act with your hands as well, to, to get the alliteration in there. So sometimes I talk about assumptions, attitudes, actions, or head, heart, hands, and a spirituality is a way of life that's trying to combine together consistently your head and your heart and your hands. And I think basically every functional human being has a spirituality of some kind or other. Just that Christians have a Christian spirituality, other people may have a Muslim spirituality, or a Hindu spirituality, or a secular humanist spirituality, and so on. But Christianity as a spirituality is about God's call to enter into a Christ-centered spirituality, a Christ-centered way of life that virtuously influences and integrates, puts together our assumptions, attitudes and actions, our head, heart and hands, through faithfulness to Jesus, to being, through being a follower of Jesus. So spirituality 
is a kind of general idea, but then we, we can specify it too. So what makes a Christianity Christian rather than Buddhist or Muslim or whatever? It's through being a follower of Jesus that you're living this way of life that tries to pull together your head and heart and hands consistently together. And I end up with, you see a few versions of this kind of table in my talks. Spirituality, head, heart and hands. And spirituality is communicated through, we've sometimes, and I think you've probably met it already on the KL course about rhetoric, thinking about rhetoric, about how you communicate persuasively with people, how you help people to recognise what is persuasive about things and to be persuaded by what is persuasive about things. Uh, and that can be at the level of the kind of head, communicate what is persuasive about something through arguments, through what the ancient Greeks would have called logos, is a term that John picks up on and uses in the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the logos. But also through heart, what Aristotle called pathos, Feeling and thing, things we Tchaikovsky wrote a symphony that's called his Pathétique Symphony. And in modern English, people will, will then think you, you mean that you're saying Tchaikovsky wrote a pathetic symphony, a really bad, really poor symphony. And of course, in the original, Pathétique means pathos, moving. It's a really moving, emotional piece of music. Symphony really moved you through its and hands, I mean, what we do, um, judge someone's uh, ethos, someone's kind of moral standing of a person or an organisation, what's the ethos of an organisation, what's the ethos of the college, in that set. So we have logos and pathos and ethos are the three categories of classical rhetoric. And then I've already mentioned in the three standards of classical philosophy, truth, and goodness and beauty. And I actually think those thoughts all relate to each other. So we have, you know, what's in your head communicated through how your words and what you argue. You judge that that by the standard of what's true, what's reasonable, what's rational. The heart, what is attractive, pathos judged by this question of beauty. And remember, I'm defending the idea that beauty is objective, something we discover. So it's a standard that you can make judgments by. You can say, yes, it is true that Tchaikovsky's symphony is beautiful. And hands are actions, ethos, communicated, judged by goodness. Is that a good way of life. Remember that article I was reading earlier and lots of people's objections to Christian spirituality and not really, oh I know, I can't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> but it's it's like, well, you know, if I was a Christian, you know, I, I disagree with Christian views of abortion. I, I, I think it would be immoral for me to be a Christian. Does becoming a follower of Jesus mean becoming an immoral person? Yeah. Right? Um, so you're saying, you know, it is true that that is good. And I think to say something is beautiful is basically to say it is true that it is good 
for you to appreciate it for the qualities that it has. So this will keep popping up. Paul Gold, in a very nice book of his recently on cultural apologetics, he added another kind of set of three. I kind of go around the world collecting these sets of three ideas, going, oh, they can match up. Gold highlighted the three longings of the human soul for truth and goodness and beauty. And three, what are called prophets or guides or capacities of the human soul, reason, conscience and the imagination. And C.S. Lewis, through later, talked a lot about reason and imagination and whether they go together or are kind of split apart. And he said, when, when, I, when I was an atheist, he said famously, you know, everything I believed was true was kind of meaningless and lifeless and, and, and barren. And everything that I believed was kind of life-giving and beautiful and meaningful, I believed was not true. And when he became, part of the reason that he became a Christian was because in conversations with folks like J.R.R. Tolkien at Oxford, Lewis became convinced that Christianity was a worldview that could be both meaningful and moving to him and imaginatively fruitful and true. as we had under a materialist world. So Gold talks about these, you know, the reason, the conscience, and the imagination. Reason guides us on the quest for truth. Conscience leads us to goodness. The imagination tra- transports us towards beauty. So you can stick them in there, as these are capacities of the, of the human being. So where Gold begins, he begins by talking about these spiritual capacities. And I would just say, Okay, there are these capacities of longing aimed at these three transcendental values to transcend the divisions between different subjects at a university. You know, you use the idea of truth in science and history and geography. And you use the idea of beauty in science and in art. And so on. Um, Three values. I begin with this three-part analysis of humans as spiritual beings made in the image of God, to whom God's capacities of longing belong, and in whom they function as potential paths to this integration, this bringing together of spiritual, and to use a a biblical Hebrew word, what you're really seeking in biblical terms there is shalom. Rich word, but kind of meaning wholeness and trying to, to reach wholeness by bringing together in a consistent way my head and my heart and my hands so that I behave in a way that's consistent with how I feel and how I feel about the world matches with how I think about the world. So we're seeking this integrative spiritual shalom, this wholeness flourishing as opposed to a kind of spiritual disintegration which you can find, like, like Lewis found, that pulling apart of his imagination and his belief in your material worldview, of, of pulling apart of, of truth and meaning, of truth and beauty. 
truth and goodness um, and actually putting them all together in a, in a whole way that kind of reflects our longings as human beings longings for reality but longings for goodness longings for beauty so you put them together there and you can also chuck in if you like you know biblical values of faith hope and love triumvirate uh, again now of course there is some overlap between these concepts um, and that's because that, that truth and goodness and beauty relate to each other anyway as I say when you say that is good of course you're saying it, it is there saying that it, it, it's true that it is good <laughs> and I think when you're saying it is beautiful you're saying it's true that it is morally permissible to admire it to admire its elegance or its simplicity or its power or what it achieves or some combination of those things and so on. So, having kind of laid out spirituality and getting these, these threes that kind of match up and specified, okay, what is it that makes spirituality Christian? And what's the kind of the, the goal of Shalom here? So in Christian discipleship, in Christian being a follower of Jesus, in being a Christian, we attempt to systematically um, orientate and direct ourselves to orientate our, our spiritual capacities that we have as beings made in the image of God that God was talking about towards God's truth and goodness and beauty. Which is to say, on the assumption that Christianity is true, what is actually true and actually good and actually beautiful, and that is all ultimately rooted in the very being and essential character of God. Part of my end fill was, was similarly to the way that St. Anselm famously talked about in medieval theology, God is the greatest conceivable being, mm. or the, the, the maximally great being, some modern philosophers talk about. And I want you to talk about God as the, the being whose essence was maximally beautiful. Uh, and that because, say, a capacity to know truth is a good thing and it was morally permissible to admire good things that meant by definition you know, that, that quality of God was beautiful but you can go in the other direction you can say God is maximally beautiful so that would mean that he has a maximal capacity to know things and so on but, thinking about God's nature. Uh, you, maybe you have already have uh, explained this, but I will ask anyway. Do. Uh, do you believe that God's truth is 100% truth? Or do you think we can, like uh, you said, beauty was like, we can learn to appreciate it. Mm. But do you think that the truth is the truth, or do you think we can 
Yeah. Very good. You nice. Nice, really, yeah, see what you're at. nice question. So, just as because it's objective, it's something to be discovered. There's this difference between the reality of the thing out there, be it the beauty of a symphony, the truth of God's thoughts about the world, and our knowledge of it, or our capacity to even kind of grasp the concepts involved and so on. And so of course our ideas, our assumptions, our beliefs can be further away or closer to the reality of the truth, the what is good to do in the situation or whether that thing is or is not beautiful. We can get our beliefs about all of those things wrong. It's only because there is an objective reality, something to be discovered, something to get right, that it's possible to say, oh, sometimes we get things wrong. If you don't believe that there is a truth out there to be discovered, if you don't think that truth or what is morally right, what is beautiful, is something out there, it just depends on us, right? It just like becomes relative to us, sub subjective. Like, well, different cultures have different kind of moral taboos, and they're different, but you can't say one is better than another. But on the idea that there's moral truth, you can say not only are these two cultures different, when one says cannibalism is great, and the other one says no, cannibalism is terrible. Hmm. It's not just that they have different ideas, because these ideas contradict each other, they cannot both be true. Hmm. <laughs> But how can you know that, like, uh, if you and have views, like, he really believes that he is closer to the, to the truth than yeah. I. But I believe the same thing. Yeah. But we are watch, uh, like, uh, yeah. yeah. That's that's when the beauty of an external truth comes in, right? Yeah, but it's both the beauty and the difficulty of it, right? It, you, you argue about it. You try and convince, you try and persuade each other, and you have to think, I, well, because I know I could be wrong, because there's a reality I'm trying to get to, and I know that I don't, you know, I'm not God. <laughs> I have to be open to thinking I could be wrong, and that means I could be persuaded by a persuasive enough reason or argument or something yeah, to like change my mind. It's scary, right? like if you come to a good coach, like you would, okay, I, I agree with you afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But if there, if, you know, we're either in that situation or we're in a situation where we don't think there is any truth or goodness or beauty to be discovered, and it, okay, well, great, I can never be mistaken. I can never make a moral error. I can do whatever I like. Cannibalism is... Cannibalism floats your boat. That's great for you. I'm happy for you that you like cannibalism. I don't personally like it. <laughs> Please stop eating my arm. <laughs> but, uh, but if you were to say to me, well, give me a good reason not to eat your arm. I would say, oh, I, I can't give you one. You know, you've got different view to mine and that's all there is to say about it. Right? So... Which of those two situations do you kind of, A, would you rather be in, and B, do you think we're actually in? <laughs> yeah.
So we're trying to, as I say, kind of systematically direct the spiritual longings for the true and the good and the beautiful towards God's, I mean, the real truth and goodness and beauty. The truth and goodness and beauty that is part and parcel and stems from God's very existence and character. On the basis of a Christ-centred way of life. So that we grow in Christ-like faith and hope and love. So this Christian spirituality both has a kind of a definition, but it's not a, it's not a static thing. To go back to a word from earlier today, it's, it's dynamic. It's evolving. It has, a, it has a goal in reality, in God, out there. It has a direction, Christ-likeness. Um, it has a, a, a movement uh, to it, to moving from what we are to what we should be. Uh, and, you know, this kind of, it's not just abstract head stuff again. This comes down to real, kind of gritty, practical questions that we can kind of ask ourselves about these, kind of make you know, wise kind of self think of yourself in sober judgment, says St. Paul. We ask the question like, okay, how am I going to spend my money in light of my discipleship to Christ? How will I spend my time? Um, how am I going to make decisions in life about what job to accept or who to go out with or whatever, you know, how I approach doing the washing up or everything. (coughs) Have you ever thought of the incarnation, the the coming into flesh, the incarnate from the the, the, the Latin word for flesh, like in chili con carne, chili with meat with flesh. Incarnation. God in flesh. The incarnation is the supreme act of divine record, of divine communication. A self-expression of divine truth and goodness and beauty in a person. Uh, John 1 and Philippians 2, 6, 8. It appeals to all of our spiritual capacities of longing. God didn't just send down a theology textbook. Or didn't just send down a kind of infallible historical description of culture over the ages. Or Fundamentally, kind of the key divine revelation is, hello, Come live life alongside me, you disciples. Become my followers. Take my message to others and get them to be my followers. Come join the kingdom. See what that kingdom life is like. I'm looking at me. The as suggested by its earliest description as the way. Have a look at Acts 11.26 and Acts 22.4. Christianity, the word was an outsider term coined by non-Christians as a term of abuse for followers of the way. 
And it kind of literally means, oh, you Christ slaves. <laughs> they think they're slaves of that Jesus guy who got himself crucified. That's so hilarious. The real term of abuse. Christian. Christianity is a, a way of life spirituality centered upon following Jesus Christ as the way, the truth and the life. John 14, 6. This Christ-centered way of living involves moving from what you are to what you're meant to be in Christ. Of course, that is not a linear graph. This kind of end point here, I put that like, okay, last judgment, end point, we all reach the, you know, faithful Christians reach the goal, but in, in the meantime, this graph might, might kind of have breaks in the line, up steeper sometimes, might go down, <laughs> and then up a bit, and then be flat, and then go up a bit, and then go down. But there is overall this kind of directionality and as much as possible, we try and seek to kind of incarnate that directionality in our life here and now, to, to put on Christ, as Paul says. Galatians two seventeen, two Timothy one one. Okay, putting on Christ. So yeah, okay. According to the Bible's salvation, to use the theological terminology. And we often kind of, in some circles, kind of reduce that idea to, do I get to go to heaven when I die? Am I saved? Have I got salvation? It's a very thin notion of salvation. Saving souls. the Bible, salvation is by faith. Um, let's say, something like trusting allegiance to Jesus. And it's not earned by works. I've collected enough brownie points, enough stickers on the star chart to, to, work, to work my way into heaven when I die. Yeah. But saving faith involves following Jesus. Because you're giving your trusting allegiance to Jesus. What it is to have faith in him. So of course it involves trying to follow him. Because faith entails discipleship. Faith produces work. The combination of what's up here and the commitments you make in here leads you to do stuff out here. How can it not? So Mark 8.34, whoever wants to be my disciple must disown himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 11.29, place my yoke on you and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble and you will find rest for yourself. For yourself. The rest of God. Or Paul here from Romans 21, 1 and 2. He urges Christians in view of God's mercies to offer yourself 
as living sacrifices. Strange kind of paradoxical turn of phrase. Arresting living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God is the reasonable way for you to worship. I love that. This is the reasonable way for you to worship. Offer your whole life and being as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God, set apart to God. Do not be conformed to this world, as the world in opposition to Jesus, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. With the result that you will approve of the will of God. What is proper? What is pleasing? And what is perfect? No no postmodernism here. No, whatever happens to please you, whatever you like, (laughs) what is. Um, properly pleasing and perfect sorry Uh, brother Uh, uh, there is only uh, 16 uh, uh, chapter in Romans right okay you've got different um, chapter divisions in the Norwegian okay these these are the English chapter divisions folks but uh, if you go onto a website like uh, biblehub.com which is a searchable bible with lots of different translations and Outdate commentaries and things. This is just this will be, uh, yeah, twenty-one. Yeah, but this is, I think, it's just released, yeah. isn't it? Are you going for amplified? Uh, this is also only sixteen. So I think it's uh, twelve. It's just a mix. Uh, uh, oh, put the, the the two and the one round the wrong way. Yeah, it's yeah. 12. <laughs> yes, Romans twelve one and two. Thank yeah. you. You are quite right. <laughs> I will correct my PowerPoint later. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Thank you. Romans 12, 1 and 2, yeah. So, uh, to get into a little bit more Greek, it's nice to get into a little bit of Greek. Uh, this, uh, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He's mm. saying, the Greek word here, uh, metanoia, repent, repentance, or we'll translate it in the Bibles as repent. Uh, repentance, uh, the root word is met- metanoia. Literally, kind of means a change of mind. I've had a change of mind. I've, I've rethought my approach to life. Metanoia, a change of mind, leads to metamorphosis, a change of form. Different thinking leads to different living. In other words. You've adopted a different way of life. There's an interesting quote from the American uh, Christian philosopher Dallas Willard um, describing the kind of a bit of a summary really of the kind of history of theological thinking from the kind of rise of so-called liberal theology particularly coming out of Germany and, and so on after the Second World War um, but earlier as, as well. Uh, and the kind of um, fundamentalist Christian reaction, or even sort of overreaction to that. 
Uh, he was Martin Luther, who once said something about the history of humanity is like a drunk who falls off a horse, struggles back on the horse and falls off the other side. <laughs> we tend to make a mistake and then immediately make the opposite mistake because we're overcompensating. Uh, so Willard says, as, as liberal theology began to kind of degenerate, boil down into a, a mild form of social ethics, that kind of stage in at least English Christian society that I was talking about earlier where everyone's like, oh, of course I'm, I'm a Christian now, I'm, I've got good morals and I am born in England. And it's dark as a baby. That means I'm a Christian. Yeah. Uh, I go and help the, the church bring in my sale to raise money for the poor of the parish. I'm doing a good Christian work. Right? Social ethics. The, the fundamentalist evangelical movement came to stress the notion that if you believe the right things, it will get you into heaven. Because one part of the church kind of dropped any emphasis on ideas and doctrine. It's all about how you behave. Another part of the church went about, oh, it's all about what you think. And, and, and talking about you know, doing good social work in the community, oh, that's liberal theology. Don't want any of that around here. You know, if you be out doing good, you should be in church doing Bible study of an evening. And Reaction. Um, that, you know, what really matters is what you profess. This left believers very little help on how to actually enter into the life that Jesus modelled and taught. So it kind of reduced the gospel to okay, I get the right ideas in here so that when I die, I go to heaven. I'm a Christian, hallelujah. Now I should go and do some Bible study because I need to be spiritual. <laughs> but Christian faith is the adoption of a trusting allegiance to Jesus Christ, involving one's assumptions and attitudes that inevitably expresses itself, of course, more or less consistently, in one's actions. It's holistic. The whole person made in the whole image of a whole God. So here's John Cottingham kind of giving an answer to this question of you know, how we actually enter into this world, life, a kind of practical answer. He says, what practical steps can we take to orientate our lives so as to respond to the call of the sacred, to grow in knowledge and love of the good and so on? He says, we learn by adopting the frameworks of spiritual practice that have come down to us. The point is, we cannot make progress just by an act of will. I'm going to try harder to be a good Christian. <sighs> However worthy such an act of will might be. Just as in the case of a school child, or an athlete, or a musician, what is eventually achieved will depend in large part on systematic habituation, forming habits in a wise way, forming habits in a wise way, and careful training. And you have to practice your scales so that you can play that mar marvellous flute piece from the marriage of Figaro. 
one of the frameworks of spiritual practice that have come down to us, the full benefits of which require systematic habituation and careful training, wise habit forming, is the study of scripture. Right? Now ask yourself, what's the point of the Bible? The Bible is not sufficient or necessary for salvation. It's not enough for salvation that you read the Bible and have it. And also you don't need it. People heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and responded to it and became followers of Jesus before any of the New Testament was written. <laughs> Let alone collected together. Let alone collected together under the covers of this new fangled invention. It's going to ruin the youth, I tell you. It's called a book. You take all the scrolls and you chop them up into these things called pages and you put them between covers all together. It's going to ruin the, the filing system at the local library. Terrible. People have always said that sort of thing about new technology. But the church was an early adopter of the new technology from the book. The Bible helps us gain access to and faithfully respond to the gospel about God's relationship with humanity and that story reaches its, its fulcrum, its tipping point in Jesus. So here's a quote from a British uh, bishop and New Testament scholar uh, called N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright, but he's famous on these shores at least anyway. He says, the Bible is not simply an authoritative description of a saving plan, uh, as though it was simply an aerial photograph of a particular piece of landscape. Right, okay, I'm going to help you learn about this landscape. Click. Here we go, have a look at that. It's more like a, the guide who takes you around the landscape and shows you how you can enjoy it to the full. Okay, just over the next rise, there's this beautiful waterfall, and you know, there's a cave behind there. You can go into it, have a little explore. You know, you need to, you're going to get wet, but it'll be worth it. Here we photograph being guided around to enjoy it. Different things. The Bible does what God wants it to do. The Bible's meant to do something to us. When it enables people to believe in Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, to follow him, to share the work of the kingdom by loving Jesus with heart and mind and strength. The Bible's going to do something to us as we, we engage with it. And the way I put it is this, that the written word of God helps with, facilitates the lived worship of God. The written word of God helps with the lived worship of God. And in the Bible, worship kind of refers both to a general way of life and spirituality and a specific activity as well. You can worship at the temple. But also, worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and everything. As a specific activity, is there a definition for a crossword in the States that I made for the European Leadership Forum called Caldoon Suisse? He says that as a specific activity, worship is the, the cognitive, so the head, 
and effective, the heart, enjoyment of something worthy, it's worthy of enjoyment, it's beautiful, that overflows in joyous praise of it to the point of adoration and action. You notice here we've got cognitive head, affective, heart, action, hands. And engages, again, our whole spiritual selves in worship. And the, what's called the liturgy, formally, the liturgy of, a, say, a worship service in a church, is a, it's just a, that means just a, a kind of structured sequence of things that we do, rituals, that enable, that help the community to together, to corporately acknowledge, appreciate God, to express and mould our faith in God with our heads and hearts and hands. So liturgy, including the sermon, is a, is a form of spiritual discipline. Heard that the spiritual disciplines. Part of the, the liturgy of a worship service, scripture is read and preached in order to help people see that being a disciple of Christ means participating, taking part in a credible and desirable way of life, a Christ centered way of life. And note, actually, this is pretty much. The definition I would give of apologetics. Apologetics is about helping people to see that being a disciple of Christ means taking part in a credible and desirable way of life. That Christ has the truth, goodness, and beauty that their spiritual longings are seeking. So I think preaching is apologetics. Real work. Informative short quote from Paul, um, 1 Corinthians 14 26. He says, Let all things, he's talking about church worship, he says, Let all things be done for edification. Edification, this is a great word when you appreciate the Greek background again. Edification is the moral or intellectual instruction or improvement of someone. Let all things be done for edification in the context of church worship. And the Greek term Paul uses here is oikodome which was a like the picture suggests a building serving as a home. And then that word could, that was literally and then you could figuratively, metaphorically use that word to talk about constructive criticism. Giving someone constructive criticism to help them form there, whatever. So constructive criticism and instruction that builds, continuing the building metaphor, builds the person up rather than tearing them down. To be a suitable dwelling place, an oikodome of God. To be somewhere where the Lord is at home. In the church as the temple of God, the place where God is at home. So Christians should not take part in liturgy in any way, go to a church service in order to kind of work up a feeling that I've I've met with the Lord. You know, I hear this language sometimes. Rather Christians should take part in liturgy 
so that the world would meet Christ through his church. It's how that church service informs us to be more Christ-like as we leave and go to work on Monday morning. This depends upon the habitual assumptions and attitudes and actions that the world finds in Christians as we have been edified, built up in Christ-likeness through the liturgy, including serving the Bible. So here's a great uh, quote from the, the late uh, Timothy Keller from the States from his book on preaching, which I think is one of the best books on preaching that I've ever read. And his book is simply called Preaching. It does what it says on the cover. I appreciate that. And he says, people change not by merely changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most. Combination. It starts up here, but got to go further. So the goal of the sermon cannot be merely to make the truth clear and understandable to the mind, but must also be to make it gripping and real to the heart. Change, education, happens not just by giving the mind new arguments but also by feeding the imagination new beauties. So again, he's talking about the spiritual capacities, rhetoric, argument, logos, truth, beauty, imagination, the attraction of, of what is beautiful and so on. He's not saying arguments and being clear about what you need and so on is bad. He's saying it's not enough. You need both the head and the heart if you're going to affect people's hands. A sermon is meant to communicate what scripture says about truth and goodness and beauty using good rhetoric to encourage a holistic spiritual formation or edification to initiate or maintain and or develop a Christ-centered spirituality.